Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God who took the daughters of men as wives and their lack of criteria in choosing them. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. John 15, 5, where he saw the Lord as the vine and himself as the branch. So how did Noah comfort Lamech and the people of God? By being a preacher of righteousness. Thank God for the Noahs that he puts in our lives. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday study in Genesis. What did Noah preach about? The goodness of God that he had done for man, as we've seen in the creation of God. The love of God and how God sought man after he sinned and didn't just judge him. The provision of God and how God provided the sacrifice to animal skins to cover them. The care of God that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but he came in to save Adam. Some of the messages probably that Noah was preaching, the comfort, and this was a comfort to Lamech and his family as it does for us. It's why important for us. Come to a Bible preaching church. That's important. That's why it's important for us. Bible studies, hear preaching about God. That's important for us. It's important for us as believers to manage our conversation as believers and just float to God. It takes a lot of work. And Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, when he said, I determined, which means I put a lot of work into, not to know anything among you, which means he didn't want to discuss anything else, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, he held the rudder of that ship of conversation in that direction. But there was something else that Noah preached as well. And he preached that, as it says in 2 Peter 2.5, it says that he preached that God was not going to spare the old world. So he preached that God was a God of judgment and salvation. And the two go hand in hand. And that's what he was preaching. The two go hand in hand, judgment and salvation. God must judge sin, yes. But as man corrupts the world, then God says, then it's an old world. And the old world will not be spared. Because man had made the world a place of sin and ungodliness. And so he said, it's old and I won't spare it. But the wonderful part of 2 Peter 2.5 is how the next two verses... Spared not the old world, but saved Noah. Spared not the old world, but saved Noah. That's how God operates. He must judge sin. There will be no sparing when it comes to judging sin, but there is salvation. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yes, Ezekiel 18.4. But Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3. And the two always go together. And that was a message that Noah brought. He's going to judge sin. The flood is coming. But he's not willing that any should perish. There's a place for you on the ark. And how unwilling is God that any should perish? He's so unwilling that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has a limit for sin in the world when he sees the ungodliness has become unrestrained, has become acceptable, has become the norm. And that point, he judges with a terrible destruction, but before he does, he saves. He saves. And he called that world 
the world of the ungodly. In 2 Peter 2.5, he says, the world of the ungodly. And he says, it's an old world. So what does God call our world today? He calls it this present world. He says in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. So he calls this the present evil world. The other one is called the world of the ungodly. This is called the present evil world. He's calling it that, this world that tantalizes us, this world that seduces us, this world that allures us, that says, come have a love affair with me. That's this world, and he calls it this present evil world. And therefore, in 1 John 2.15, God says, don't love it. Love not the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10, hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. For Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we're told that. Now we come to Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, you thought we'd never come there, but we have. I calculated the other day, if we go at our current rate, we will be finished with Genesis in 297 years. <laughs> so don't go anywhere <laughs> for a while. Anyway, Genesis 6. All right, now, here in Genesis 6, first verse, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, took them wives of all which they chose. Okay, and you read the rest there. The Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Sets a limit, 120 years. And then it says, God saw, verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. Now here's a new development that takes place. It's very, very bad. It's described in these first six verses so bad it causes some very unusual words for God to say in verse 6. It says it grieved him at his heart. There's a Yiddish word that is used to describe this kind of heartache. Here it's the word tsuris. Tsuris. Whenever my grandmother would say that she had a tsuris, she wasn't talking about a surface irritation. She was talking about a deep aggravation. One of the words that she could pronounce, aggravation. She'd say, you would aggravate me. Anyways, aggravation of her heart. Very deep trouble. When a loved one is hopelessly sick and going to die, that's a tsuris. That's a tsuris. When my uncle Hyman, my grandmother's first son, became the doctor instead of the rabbi. And not just any school. Oh, no. Uncle Hyman, he went to Harvard. And then he returned to Petersburg, Virginia, and everyone was so proud of Hyman, the rabbi's son who became the doctor trained at Harvard. She was so proud of him until that one night when Uncle Hyman was working at the hospital there in Petersburg and made some kind of medical error and a lady died. And immediately the star of the rabbi's family became the shame of the rabbi's family. And he brought so much shame on the family that the family finally asked him to leave. And he went into exile and settled in New York. But no one ever forgot it. I mean, I went back to Petersburg, Virginia about five years ago, and this had occurred 
about 60 years ago. And the lady who I met there recounted it all to me like it happened yesterday. Oh, yeah, your Uncle Hyman. That was a tsuros for my grandmother until the day she died. It was a deep aggravation of her heart. And what has happened here in Genesis 6 is a great tsuros for God. A deep aggravation in God's heart. It's so bad that God said, I'm sorry that I ever made man. Like my grandmother who had such high hopes for my Uncle Hyman and God had such high hopes for man. And instead of making God happy, man made God ashamed and very sad and angry. A great pseudos for God. And that's what happened here. And so what happened to make the great pseudos for God's heart? Well, we have the start of the history here in, in verse 1. We're told that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, we've seen in the last two chapters the two seeds. One's called the line of Seth, or the people with God, and the, or the sons of God. And the other's called the line of Cain, or the people without God, or the sons of the serpent, or the devil. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 are two groups referred to. One group is called just men, and the daughters were born to them who we could call them the daughters from the group called men. And the other group is called the sons of God. And the group called the sons of God, we know who that is. That's the line of Seth. That's the people of God. And the other group is just called men. That's the group without God or the line of Cain or the seed of the devil. And what are we told? Up until this point, the two lines have kept to themselves. The line of Cain's been on this side, characterized by murderers without God. And they were separate from the line of Seth. On the other side, characterized by calling on God and walking with God. And now a situation arises where we are told that the daughters were born to the line of Cain or the line without God. So, of course, daughters are born to them. That's what you expect. But these were not your common everyday daughters. Oh, no. Verse 2 said they were fair. That means that these daughters without God, they were drop-dead gorgeous. They were knock-your-socks-off, stunningly beautiful. Kind of daughters that mamas need to keep their sons locked up. (laughs) Don't let them out, because this is instant heartbreak, daughters. And so what happened? Well, mamas from the line of God didn't keep their sons locked up. And there's a very significant word in verse 2, and it's the word saw. They saw. Them boys, they sat on the corner, they watched them, hot chicks, walk by. And then the next significant word in verse 2 is they took. So those are two words you've got to keep in mind. They saw and they took. You know, they had one criteria for getting a wife. She looks bad, move on, let her for the next guy. She looks good, grab her before the next guy comes along. There's no indication here at all that these boys here, these men with God, had any criteria for choosing a wife that might be in the realm of moral integrity. There's no indication of that. You know, no one seems to be asking the question, did I care if she was a person with a sterling character? Did I ask others to describe her to me? Did I ask others about her reputation? Did I ask her friends to describe her to me? Did I care about what they would say about her? Did I try to find out if under pressure she would lie and not tell the truth? Did I ask examples of others uh, how they've seen her under pressure and whether she was faithful to her promises when it cost her something? Did I ask if she ever told a lie and what it was? And did I question her to see if she really being honest with me? 
about whether or not she ever told a lie, and did she really told me what the lie was, and how did she sort of seem when she was talking about it? Did she seem to justify herself when she told the lie, or was she really acting sad over it? Did I care that she might be lying to me, and it might be nice to know if I can trust her? Did I try to find out if she's a kind and compassionate person, or is she selfish? and always choosing herself above others. What examples did I try to find out about how she was self-sacrificing to help others? Did I ask her brothers and her sisters about how it was growing up with her? How they shared things at home? Did I try to find out examples of histories that they would tell me of what she was like to live with? Did I try to find out if she loves what's right and what's good, what's pure, or if she doesn't care about that? Did I evaluate what I've seen in her of how she may have turned away from defilement, uncleanness, sin? Did I look for examples of her trying to instill in others a love for purity and goodness? I mean, I'm going to be her husband, which means I'm going to be her new authority in her life. And so did I try to find out how she views authority in her life? Did I try to find out about the kind of relationship she had with her father? since after all, I'll be taking his place. Did I try to find out examples of how she submitted to her father's authority? Did I ask her to describe her father to me? Did I care to know if she would speak highly with admiration about her father or just describe him as someone that she couldn't wait to get out from under his authority? Because it's likely that's how she's going to be speaking about me before too long when the honeymoon's over. Did I ask her the question of if you was possible that you could change anything in your father, what would it be? Because it's likely that that's what she's going to be saying about me. Why don't you change? Did I care what kind of a lifelong friend and companion she would make for me? Did I ask them if they couldn't wait to get her out of the house or if they really didn't want her to leave the home? Because that might be what I'll be saying about her when the honeymoon's over. Did I ask her if she could change anything about her brothers and sisters? What would it be? Because, again, she may be saying that about me. Did I ask her what she thinks about life and children, seeing as how she comes from a line of murderers? Did I ask her what she likes and dislikes about children? Did I observe her around children? Did I see how she interacts with children? Because I want her to be the mother of my children. And so it might be nice to know what kind of a mother she's going to make. Now that I've evaluated the area of her moral integrity, let me now evaluate the area of our spiritual kinship. Did I tell her that I come from a line with God and I know she comes from a line without God? And did I ask her if she wants to cross over the line and have God in her life? Or does she just want to continue in her life as she's been raised without God? That might be nice to know because we're going to have one home between us and it's either going to be a home without God or a conflict and a war inside. Did I ask her what she knows about God, what she thinks about herself and God? to try to find out, are we related as the seed of God? Did I ask her if she wants to learn about God, get closer to God, or if she just wants to stay away from God? Because I want to be with God, and I want to get closer to God. And so I'm trying to find out if we're going to have a lot of trouble in our home. Did I ask her what she thinks will happen to her after she dies? Because I'm going to heaven. I'm related to Enoch. He just was taken off this life. And I want to make God happy because I'm going to go see him. She has shared those views. Did I ask her how she views the murder 
of Abel by the starter of her line, Cain. And did I ask her how she views Lamech, who bragged about murder? Because if she didn't say she was ashamed about what they did, she's not on God's side. Now, none of those questions were asked by any of these men. None of those questions about moral integrity, none of those questions about spiritual kinship, there was only one question asked by those sons of God, and it was just simply, was she pretty? Yes, take her. No, leave her. And God says, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, it's not of the Father. It's of the world. The world passes away. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. Things which are not seen are eternal. And the tragic words was they chose in verse 2 with no consultation of anybody else. Did I ask anybody else? No, they chose. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the guidance we receive in your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we read about those who went the wrong way, that you would, Lord, help us to learn and to realize that we're one step away from going the way they did. And help us, Father, to walk with you as Enoch did. Thank you for this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, that's an all-encompassing phrase that you ended the program today with. It's all that is in the world from 1 John 2. Now, how is that phrase something that affects our lives today? There's just so much in the world. Yes, uh, this is a very, very important phrase because, because it really leaves no corner that hasn't been addressed, that the light hasn't shined on. Every part in the world has really addressed when it says all that is in the world. And that's why the First John 2, 15 through 17 is so vitally, vitally important And just to read it again, it starts off and it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, when we really take this verse to heart and realize that is a blanket statement on everything that's in the world, all that's in the world is either the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, and it is not of the Father, but it's of the world. When we take that to heart, then it will have an effect on our lives. It will affect our daily decisions. Why? Because Because 1 Peter 3.11 says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Let's stop there. What are all the things that are going to be dissolved? Well, it's the same thing that that, uh, John was referring to when he said, and the world passeth away. So everything in the world is going to be dissolved. It's going to pass away. And so Peter says, seeing then, seeing then, and that's really the question, do we see this? Do we see that all things in the world are going to be dissolved? Do we really see that everything, all that is in the world, is is either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life? Do we see that? That's what God's saying to us. Christian, do you see this, that all of this in the world is going to pass away? Then he says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved or disintegrated or melted 
All these things are going to be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, our lives are the daily decisions of our lives. The more we focus on the fact as revealed to us in the Bible that everything that's in this world that allures us, that entices us, that draws us to itself, that flatters us, that that says, come over here. It's the grand Las Vegas, everything. You will be the celebrity. You will be the VIP. You will be the best and so forth. That's the world. And seeing that all those things are going to be dissolved, then God says it ought to have an impact on the daily decisions that you make so that you make a decision. We make decisions to say that where we ask ourselves a question, is that the direction of godliness? Is that the direction of holiness? Then I'm going to make the decision in that direction. Is that not the direction of godliness and not the direction of holiness? Why waste my time? I love the song that Bert Poole wrote years ago when he was talking about the world and he wrote the little melody and he says, let it go by, let it go by. You don't want it. You don't need it. For the sting of death lies coldly on its brow. Draw me closer, blessed Jesus. See, the way he said that, let it go by, let it go by. So it will defect our decisions. It will affect our plans the plans that we make. Why? Because it says in Titus 2, 12 through 13, it says there, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In other words, God is saying to us, you are spies behind enemy lines. In this present world, be different. In other words, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts when they come. And uh, as Bert Poole said, just let it go by. Let it go by. You don't want it. You don't need it. The sting of death is there. He said, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. And then he says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, as we look to him and realize that he is very, very present and we're expecting him to come at any moment, then we'll walk toward him. We'll walk in a way that's pleasing to him. You know, the great tight walk roper, Blondin, he used to push barrels over tight ropes over Niagara Falls with all the mist and the roar and everything. And, he, and one time he was asked, what's your secret? What's your secret that you don't lose your balance, that you don't fall into the Niagara Falls? And he says, I'll tell you. He says, before I ever set my feet on that tightrope, I look off in the sky and I either see or I imagine a star and I watch that star. I don't look down at my feet. I don't look at the falls. I don't look at anything around me. I just look at that star and I walk toward that star. As he says, and as he walked toward that star, he didn't fall. He didn't stumble. Why? Because he was looking at the star and moving toward it. You know, that's a beautiful 
beautiful example for our lives. The star is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we fix our eyes on him, then we walk making decisions which are sober decisions. We make decisions which are righteous decisions, which are godly decisions. We don't stumble. We don't fall because like the tightrope walker, we have our eyes fixed on something very far off but very definite. And that's the meaning behind this verse where it says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's how it ties in, verse 13 ties in with verse 12, when how we are to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and live soberly and righteously and godly, saying if you do that, if you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you won't stumble and fall. And it'll affect our life purpose. Paul said his life purpose in Philippians 7 through 10, he says, the things that were gained to me, ah, He says, I counted them but loss for Christ. Doubtless, I caught all things but loss for the excellency. And Paul, that uses that word, the excellency, nothing better, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, we want to be found in him. We want to be found loving him, found worshiping him. We That's what it means to love his appearance. You know, a little boy is asked one time, do you, when your parents go away, do you love their appearing? And the little boy said, that depends on what I'm doing when they appear. If I've got my hand in the cookie jar, I don't love their appearing. But if I'm doing what I should be doing, then I love their appearing. The same is true for us. If we are walking the life and in the light, then we love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that affects, therefore, our purpose. And of course, it affects the love because the Bible says there in 1 John, love not the world, and then it goes into everything, and so it will cause us not to love the world and to love the Lord Jesus Christ instead. Thank you for joining us today. Now, did you know that you can find Tom Cantor, Israel Restoration Ministries, and the Friendship with God radio program on Facebook? You can, so join us there today, and you can receive a daily devotional from Tom Cantor on Facebook every day. You can also contact Tom Cantor by sending him an email. Email him at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's Tom, C-A-N-T-O-R, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also learn more about Tom Cantor by going to friendshipwithgod.org. And again, if you have a lost Jewish friend and you want to reach them with a Tom Cantor DVD, call us today, 1-800-247-3051.